0: to uh, Volume 1, Issue 3 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. Uh, today, along with myself, Leon Cox, and Jay Taylor, we have a very special guest, the very first guest on the Cane and Rinse podcast. Uh, he covers a lot of bases. It's James Milkey. Hi, James.
1: Good evening, afternoon, morning.
0: Whatever time it is. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, you've had a very busy day, we understand, uh, over there in Tokyo.
1: Yeah, it's been a little bit uh, hectic today. We... Um we uh, hit our, one of our first major milestones for um, uh, our game, Luminous, that we're working yes. on for the PlayStation Vita launch, and it's, uh, it was a pretty big milestone, so um, today, was, today was definitely a, a very busy Friday.
0: Excellent. Fantastic! So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Luminous later, but um, how long is it till the machine launches over there now?
1: um the vita. W- well it's coming out uh i believe december 17th so that gives us about what two months october november november mm. december yes two months until the vita comes out in fact pre-orders open tonight i think in about an hour and a half so uh crikey yeah okay
0: <laughs> and you're a, you're a launch title again um, um is that right we're going to be launch
1: in the west so okay. north america and europe simultaneously as well as japan but we won't be available at launch in japan too soon okay
2: right fair enough (laughs) okay Uh, i'm surprised by that really um yeah
1: surprised by which
2: uh the fact that you're not in uh sort of like your home territory if you will um day one yeah
1: that was actually a tactical um decision um originally we did want to target launch in japan but Mm -hmm. um we needed more time because uh you know when you're trying to create a game for a system launch you it's mm. you almost never have enough time and the fact that the western launch is going to be a few months later than the uh Japanese launch um you know that's a that's yeah. a big uh boon for us so yeah
0: yeah luminous did well in the west uh on PSP didn't it and other pl- formats so um, yeah very well yeah. Um, James, the first thing before we get on to more specific Q entertainment stuff is, uh, while we've got you, we'd love to talk about your, your sort of your path, your trajectory through the industry and well, and life to a certain extent, because <laughs> you've, you've done quite a lot of stuff. It's fair to say, okay. um, quite a, quite a variety of things. So, uh, you studied, uh, art at yeah. the school of visual arts. Is that yeah. right? And, right? You guys uh, did your homework. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, You worked as an illustrator for, amongst other publications, Time and uh, Marvel Comics.
1: Yeah, that was uh, the 90s, the good old days of my youth.
0: (laughs) Marvel Music Division. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I actually worked for a division at Marvel Comics called the Marvel Music Division. People like, um, you know, Dave McKean.
2: Oh, yes. There's a lot of, Mm -hmm.
1: uh, you know, the kind of Arkham Asylum type Mm -hmm. stuff, or at least he used to. Uh, he was probably the most uh, famous artist who worked in that division. They did a lot of comics on Alice Cooper, Kiss, Public Enemy. I was working on a House of Pain comic, um, which, <laughs> as bizarre as it sounds, uh, was pretty pretty interesting. But the tragic part for me was that that particular comic, which I did um, all the pencils, inks, and, and actually coloring myself, um, it was halted at the printing press on the drums because that was, it happened precisely when Marvel comics went bankrupt <laughs> oh. when it was still owned by, um,
0: that must've been pretty heartbreaking.
1: Oh, it was, it was a bad day. In fact, um, I remember going into the offices after they went bankrupt, the famous Marvel bullpen where all the staff artists, um, you know, the people who did all the retouching, a lot of people who did kind of like lettering, inking, um, coloring, uh, the place was empty. You know the mm. difference between the week before they went bankrupt and the week after they went bankrupt was just shocking. Of course, there were still people working there in an administrative sense, but uh, that was a that was a weird day for sure.
0: I bet this sounds. Uh, those of us who are familiar with the, the the Ziff Davis story, this sounds eerily familiar to stories we've heard told on on uh, uh, as regards to that. But before we we get there. Um, Amongst other things, after can I ask at this point, did you did you see your future career in comics? Did you imagine this is where where you were going to you know stay end up working, um, writing uh, drawing comics? You know,
1: when I was a kid, that's all I wanted to do. You know, yeah. um, like many young boys, you know, comic books were the were one of the main forms of entertainment back then, and um, you know. All I, you know, in, in school, there's always like some kid in your, your grade who draws or or a couple kids. And I was that guy. And all I wanted to do was draw comics when I grew up, you know, draw Spider-Man, whatever. Um, So up until I was about, I don't know, early twenties, that's, I I thought I wanted to do that. But um, as I became exposed to other things in the art field, like graphic design Interior design, just you know, kind of like pure commercial illustration. I, I discovered that you know, comics was definitely one of the things I wanted to do, to do but it wasn't purely what I wanted to do anymore.
0: What, well, funnily enough, the uh, the kid at my school who drew the comics was Jason Brashill, who went on to do covers for Two Thousand AD and um, worked for Valve until recently. Oh, excellent! So I was, didn't know that. He was a pretty cool guy. Um, then at some point you ended up designing clothes, an, a natural step from uh, drawing House of Pain in comics. Obviously, uh, for, for Dollhouse.
1: Yeah, you know it's funny when you, you'd think that when you look at my CV that that um, you know I, I spent a lot of time hitting the streets with my portfolio, going from you know publisher to designers to mm. whatever. Almost none of that happened in that way i was actually bartending at a very very popular centrally located um trendy bar in new york city called the coffee shop and mm-hmm. i would say 90% of the the freelance jobs that i picked up were actually um from art directors and stuff who came into the bar ah. just ended up drinking and you know you if you're a sociable bartender like i was you end up um you know getting to know these people and they of course, they always end up asking you, think, you know, the kind of stock standard questions like, oh, how long have you lived in the city? How old are you? Um, what do you do when you're not bartending yeah. or whatever? So one thing leads to another. And then, you know, that's exactly how I ended up working for uh, uh, Marvel Comics. That's how I ended up working for Gray um, Advertising, which is a huge advertising firm in New York. And yeah. you know, a lot of it just happened that way. Almost no no dragging the portfolio around, which was really kind of ironic.
0: That makes so much more sense now, and I see where I've been going wrong in my career. Um, <laughs> working in a bar.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not something I would recommend, because you don't have much energy at the end of the day for anything else, which is why i was extremely mm-hmm. lucky to meet those people in the first place
0: so you ended up uh writing about and uh, designing for magazines as well writing about games um so presumably video games were a, a lifelong passion at this point
1: that's another funny thing it's not that video games weren't a passion i was lucky enough to have um uncles in japan who and mm. uncles and aunts in japan who when you know nintendo's game and watch um first appeared you know they would send me these things from Japan so i was the envy at my elementary school oh, yeah. in in new york right because those things just did not exist in america for another couple of years so i would get these video games these handheld game and watch these little lcd games and you know it was it was kind of mind blowing i was always the center of attention because people wondered what cool cool electronic toys i had in my backpack but um mm-hmm. although i played games all my life and always had them. Um, it never really occurred to me like, Oh, well, you know, this is something I ought to go, I ought to go do with my life because at that time it really wasn't a, a profession, you know, video games were, could have easily just been a fad. It could have been like the toy of the season. And then, you know, it could have, people could have moved on and, 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 you know, become obsessed with something else. But video games mm. happened to stick around so by the time I actually got into the media side about of of writing about video games, um, you know, by the, even then it wasn't really a really established thing. Magazines were the the, the game magazines were still borderline fanzines with slightly higher production value. Um, yes. Websites. When I first started writing for um, Gamespot back in like 1998, you know, the internet was still really new then. You know, chat chat rooms were all handled on IRC. It was it was really a, a kind of kind of a an exciting time because it was a, a big big shift um in how people got their information. But you know, even then it never occurred to me, Oh, I can do this for a living. So when it mm-hmm. did happen, it was really, really just kind of a surprise. It totally took me off guard.
0: You met someone in a bar, presumably.
1: Nope. No, th- at this point, <laughs> I was actually ru- running my own bar in New York City, and uh-huh. um, uh, you know, I was I was still playing games. At this point, I I was an adult, so I could afford these things. Now I couldn't afford them uh, much when I was younger. You know, you, you read about a lot of kids who who you know they played the they imported the original Final Fantasies, the, the first three or four Final Fantasies cartridges that cost one hundred and fifty. $150. I, I couldn't afford that, um, especially not uh, when I first got out of college, but um, as I got older into my mid-20s, my later 20s, I had a lot more disposable cash, so I started importing a lot of Saturn titles, a lot of PlayStation 1 titles, a lot of Dreamcast titles, yeah. and so um, I actually just wrote a couple reviews for fun, but it was the um, a review I put up on a, a, a fan site, an import PlayStation fan site. The, the, the website was actually called animeplaystation.com. And mm-hmm. I wrote a review for fun, purely for fun, because this website had some slightly higher production values. Um, I submitted a review for Samurai Showdown 2. And um, Joe cool. Fielder, the executive editor of GameSpot, just happened to cross that review. And the cool thing about the site was that they actually put a link to your email. So I was totally, totally surprised when I came home one day, checked my email, um, and there was an article, uh, sorry, not an article, uh, an email from Joe Fielder asking me if I would like to submit user reviews to GameSpot. And mm-hmm. I said, sure, why not? Yeah. So I started a dialogue with him, and he, um, one day I, I said to him, I sent him an email and said, Hey, have you tried Theme Hospital on PlayStation? It's really fun. And he said, Well, ironically, Electronic Arts has not sent us a review copy of that game. Would you be interested in oh. writing the review for GameSpot? And I said, Sure. He said, We pay you 50 bucks. I said, Wow, that's beautiful. That pays for the game. You know, I, that was a big perk. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I started after that. He. Put me on a monthly retainer asked me to write up import gaming news because I bought all the import um Japanese uh gaming magazines I had them air mailed to me every week and I just translated all the news um uh I wrote up tons of import reviews and they just put me on a monthly retainer and soon after that, since um gamespot was at the time owned by Ziff Davis, I started working for electronic gaming monthly as well yeah. and when EGM saw how fast I wrote, um, and you know, and I, I I tried to write like a what I thought at the time was a you know kind of a professional mature approach. You know, I didn't write things like "oh, this game sucks, this game rules." I tried to write it like I would imagine a movie review yep. would be written. Um, yes. you know, it just it, one thing led to another, and I put, I got in.
0: Absolutely awesome. I think, um, yeah, I think you and I, we're similar age, and I think we both started importing in earnest around the same time, although um, as uh, in, in, in England, PAL land, it was even more essential to import at that point because um, the U.S. was getting a lot of games that we weren't getting, and in a lot of cases they were, because you shared the, the television system with Japan, we were getting the butchered PAL versions that were slower and had borders. And uh, yeah, yeah, you guys right. definitely got the raw end of the deal. We did in those years. days yeah it's it's so much better now um but yes i'm i'm looking at a photo uh of one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen which is your uh signed copy of uh, azel panzer dragoon rpg oh. with former members <laughs> of team andromeda all over the case that is unbelievable
1: that is my uh that is probably the jewel in my collection because of the fact that i got that relatively posthumously for the for the yeah. you know for the existence of the team um a little backstory about that particular item um i was doing an interview with um howai who who is the the um leader of uh oh, smilebit at the time yeah. and mm-hmm. um they had come around with the panzer dragoon orda team yeah. so of course i always go into these interviews prepared with my um with my um geeky fan stuff and i asked them if there were any former members of team andromeda in this interview. And Mm. there were none. And and Kawagoe-san asked me, oh, why do you ask? And I said, well, I brought um, this copy of Azel with me. And I was hoping to have um, somebody from the team sign it. And he said, well, if you give me the game, uh, I'll take it back to Sega. And I will get it signed by every Team Andromeda member I can find. And um, I'll send it back to you. I was like, wow, that would be fantastic. Please, please do, and he did, and it came. Out, it turned out so much more phenomenal than I could have ever have hoped. And there's, <laughs> yeah. no, there's, there's no way that I would have ever have ever met all those guys, even if I carried that thing around with me for years. Like, there's no way I would have been able to compile the array of signatures that graces that cover. It's, it, it's mm. just one of a one in a million kind of a thing. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they'll possibly all never be in the same place at the same time uh, uh, ever again. So,
1: what, What's beautiful for me is that I actually work with the, um, the artist of Panzer Dragoon Saga at Q Entertainment, the, the, the guy who did all of the art for that game. Wow,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. Is there any way you can use your powerful influence in, in, the, in the Japanese uh, games development industry to persuade whoever it might be to, to get us an HD downloadable remake of Panzer Dragoon Saga?
1: Um, the only way that that would happen, do you, are you are you guys familiar with the game um, Princess Crown?
0: Uh, I yeah, I'm aware of it. Um, it I've not played it. it. It's, uh, it's is that vanilla. That's a vanillaware. Yeah, I it was
1: before they were actually called vanilla wear, but it's the yes, same same yeah. guys. And um, okay, so that that I guess back in those days, they did not actually save the data or store the data or archive it very well. So mm. in the case of Princess Crown, the the PSP version that came out is a pure emulation of the original game because the original code does not exist anymore. Right. So that's why it was never released in English, because they can't reverse engineer that part. They can only kind of like take the existing ROM and slap it in an emulator and put it on a UMD. So yeah. they can't cannot Reverse engineer that game. Same thing with um, Panzer Dragoon. The original data does not exist. I did an interview with uh, Yukio Futatsugi, the director of that game, and he told me that at Sega there were some people at Sega who did not like the Panzer Dragoon series and who sort of ensured that the data disappeared. And that is so tragic. It is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes. So in order to actually emulate that game they would either have to um do what they did with prince's crown which is just take the data on the saturn disc and somehow create an emulator that would run that and yeah. it's not mm. and that's not easy or they would have to remake it
0: yeah so the, I mean, the saturn's a notoriously difficult machine to emulate thanks to its yeah. dual processors and all that kind of thing um we've seen but we've seen the we had the remake of uh knights on the ps2 and and they did do the Slightly disappointing Panzer Dragoon um, re-release on the Sega Ages label, didn't they? But I would love yes. to see like a full, a full remake would would, would be a, a thing. Uh, well, a here's thing the
3: thing.
1: Here's the thing that gives me hope. They yeah. managed to port, not Sega specifically, but Treasure. They managed to port Radiant Silver Gun and Guardian Heroes to XBLA. Yes. So yes, indeed. the The difference there, though, is that they. Presumably, had the original code.
3: Yeah. Because absolutely.
1: they were able to do all those um, fancy graphical tricks to it. So, you know, Treasure must have archived their stuff very well. Pres- presumably, again, the code does not exist for Panzer Dragoon anymore. So it would have to be emulated in some form. And I don't know if SIG mm. is going to go through that kind of trouble.
0: No. Uh, yeah. The, and the, the, I was just playing Guardian Heroes earlier. The, the, the versions of all the treasure games on XBA. XBLA are, are superb as well. They're treated with real respect, and there's the option to play the original look as well as a tastefully done upgrade or, or, or and so on. And um, they give you as many options as you could possibly wish for as well. I think that's a it's kind of, kind of like a, a how to do it of, um, as was, uh, Res HD, I should say, actually. That was another game where, um, the it was treated with enough respect you know um like a great new version as well as the original in there for the people who wanted it and yeah. all the options you'd expect you know online leaderboards and and that kind of thing and um, the Res
1: HD project was actually a lot of work they had to um they had to redo everything um they didn't redo everything from scratch but they had to take all the existing artwork and and um touch up every last bit so that it mm. looked would look good in in high definition.
2: Did a great job. So, James, um, I believe you've had a couple of uh, different cameos with your uh, with with a couple of games in the past. Um, yeah. You'll have to help me with one of these. Uh, okay, game, game,
0: game Center CX, I don't know, or <laughs> Chosenjo, a retro game challenge. Uh, did right, come right. out o- over here in Europe, um, but uh, they. They used various uh, personalities from the uh, or sort of caricatures of of personalities from the egm days and uh, and you're in, you're in there
1: yeah so are you asking like how did that uh, yeah come how did about? that
2: come about you know i mean the fatal we we saw the youtube video with the fatal frame on yesterday so uh...
1: <laughs> oh there's a video of it yeah oh yeah there, there ah. is yeah oh, I mean, you got I, to send I, me the I, link for that one i want to see that but uh, <laughs> uh, as far as the, the game center one so the the guys who published that is um are uh, exceed right
0: exceed yeah. and
1: and uh i is uh, some of those guys uh used to um uh basically run squaresoft u s before it turned into square enix and uh since i've known them for a long time you know they they i was one of the people they approached they said, hey, can we use your uh likeness in the game because there's this whole kind of like magazine thing with um quote unquote you know real life editors um i guess they do the same thing in the japanese version so i said sure yeah so they asked me to send them like uh four or five um different profile shots and that was basically it and that you know um i don't know if you've actually played the game but um yeah you you can so you know you can unlock certain magazines you know of of game fan or whatever and uh Then they have like some quotes where you're basically giving some tips or commenting on the theme of the magazine. So, you know, it was it was pretty cute. I didn't really do much uh, more than um, send them a few photos and give them my permission to use my likeness. But it was it was neat,
0: (laughs) cool though. Yeah, definitely cool. And the the Fatal Frame or Project Zero, as we know it over here, uh, it's the second game in the series of four. Crimson Butterfly. Um, You're a ghost in that.
3: Yeah.
1: Apparently I, I've, I've never actually seen myself in that, in that, um, I've never actually found my own ghost in that game. I've just seen the screen captures okay. of it, but um, right. ap- apparently it's supposed to be one of the kind of scarier surprises. Um, again, I, I wouldn't know. I, I kind of like play that game with my eyes half closed, but, um, yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was, <laughs> it, it was the same kind of thing. Um, I, I know the director very well and the, and the producer and, and, um, uh, that, you know, I wasn't the only editor. There are quite a few editors in there, but um, mm.
3: uh,
1: you know, who was kind of submit a, a photograph of yourself and um, and uh, I guess write up a little little blurb that they would put in the uh, description. Apparently, I was the only one who really went out of his way to kind of try and make a freaky looking uh, photograph. Everybody else just sent in a picture of themselves, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, you've got a kind of, it looks, we were discussing this, um, it looks like you <laughs> took it with like a, I don't know, a fisheye lens effect on or something like that, from underneath your face, something like that. So you look a bit, yeah, a bit creepy and bizarre.
3: Yeah,
1: and then I photoshopped it and cut my pupils out. So it's just this <laughs> oh. like, these like white <laughs> okay. eyes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I tried to, great. I tried to put my best foot forward.
0: Uh, any other cameos we don't know about? or those the only two so far? other than um, credits in games that you've produced and things?
1: Well, um, in Silent Hill 3, mm-hmm. um, they had um, a bunch of magazines in the Western Territory um, submit uh, T-shirt designs for the main character, Heather. And I designed two shirts because I was involved with two magazines at that time, EGM and GMR. Yeah. So um, there are two T-shirts in... Silent Hill 3 that uh, I designed. The, um, and I think they're, the, personally, I think they're the coolest t shirts because I actually designed them <laughs> as if I would norm, uh, actual clothes, whereas yeah. most of the other publications just sent in their logo, which I thought was really boring. Um, <laughs> I'm a voice actor in Grand Theft Auto 3. Oh,
0: I'm, what's the vo- the part?
1: I'm the voice of the Yakuza NPCs.
0: <laughs> I did
2: not know that. That's brilliant. Uh, I did not uh, know that.
0: Well,
1: the fu- <laughs> all, the fu- all of them. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is is that when I was at the voice recording sessions in New York, because uh, I, I've known the rock star guys longer than probably anybody in the uh, industry, um, mm. because I used to live in New York when they were mm. just forming. And um, they so they brought in all their kind of media friends and they and, and put him in the sound booth and they had all the wrong they had everybody mismatched they had they had this um caucasian journalist doing indian cab driver they had a they had a um, a a black guy in this in the sound booth doing the um yakuza originally but he sounded like a jamaican
0: right guy. yeah
1: and that wasn't his natural accent, but when he was trying to do the yakuza voice, he ended up sounding like a Jamaican. I said, "You got to get this guy the hell out of the sound booth. I'll do the I'll do the accent." <laughs> and so I did the yakuza, and um, you know, yeah. I don't know if you've heard, but like apparently GTA Three is coming to um, iOS devices, so okay. uh, You'll be um, back. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. Unless they, unless they change the the voice acting or something but i can't imagine why they would that would be a lot of
0: work you're not on a royalty though presumably otherwise you'd be quite excited about that yeah i'd be
1: really stoked but no there's no royalty (laughs) we just we just did it for fun
2: (laughs) i definitely have all those sound files on my phone if i was you though uh... yeah i'm gonna have to dig through that
1: dig through that uh dig through that file.
2: <laughs> how many
0: lines? They didn't have that many lines back in GTA Three days, did they? They tended to repeat fairly often. So, I mean, mm-hmm. how many sort of lines did you record for something like that? I think probably I recorded a few.
1: Probably about like five.
0: They right. were just yeah.
1: sh- short sound bites, short sound mm-hmm. bites. So, you know, they probably recorded them at a really low bit um, rate or something. Yeah. So, they're just some just some smart alky remark. If you bump into them on the street, that's me.
0: That's me mouthing off. I I will remember that now. So amongst uh, the obviously many sort of, well, I guess uh, those of us who are video game fanboys would call all these things um, perks of the job. Um, I'd actually call it a charmed life by the sounds of it. Charmed life, yeah, (laughs) maybe, maybe. Um, Yeah, getting to meet favourite developers Mm -hmm. and and get to appear in games and and stuff like that. But then um, what happened, well, not next exactly, but uh, at the end of your your period as as editor-in-chief of uh, one-up, things like that, EGM, I should say. Um, we, is it true that you were basically headhunted by uh, Mizuguchi-san?
1: I guess I should wind it back a little bit before I started talking to these guys about going into the development side. I, you know, I had been doing this at this point for over 10 years. 10 years for full as a full-time job and two years before that as a as a on retainer, um, Sif Davis, uh, kind of like hired gun on the East coast. And even before then, you know, I was, I was doing quite a bit of gaming and, and really kind of getting into the whole like art of it, you know, or back in the turbo graphics days, I hadn't, yeah, I didn't know the difference between a good game or a bad game. There was no real critical eye for that kind of thing. But, hmm. um, you know, so it really felt like I had been doing this for, for, Maybe around fourteen, fifteen years, and it is a wonderful job. And it is—I was really blessed to be able to fall into this without trying. You know, there—you know—kids these days now actually really, really aspire specifically to get this kind of job or to, you know, to write about games for a living. And it's a good Not job. Not many kids, but it's, I can,
0: I can tell you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so lots of people, right? But yeah, um, yeah. you know nowadays like you know you get these like you know i know a lot of guys who are working in industry now who i knew them when they were teenagers and they had their own website you you know it could have been a geo city site you know they really Mm. dreamed of doing this and not to sound aloof about it but i never dreamed of doing this you know i was lucky to fall into it so by the time i did and by the time it you know by the time i left it was a full-on legitimate profession um I was I was kind of burnt out for sure. I mean, not, you know, it's going to sound, this is not going to sound good no matter how I say it, but how many times can <laughs> I interview Hideo Kojima? You know, because I've done the <laughs> deep, deeply, deeply autobiographical, well, not autobiographical, but biographical interviews with yeah. Kojima. I've interviewed mm. Miyamoto eight, nine times. I've interviewed, you know, I've done real biopic type stuff with um, Yoshitaka Amano, Nobuo matsu you know um people like that all I would say I had interviewed the majority of like the 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 game uh the gaming industry's greatest creators um yeah. multiple times and i I like to do really comprehensive in depth deep um interviews and but you can only do that so many times, so it wasn't like I felt like I was the best writer ever, I just felt like I had done all I could do and I I really felt like, hey, it's time for, you know, guys with more enthusiasm for this, you know, takeovers. For me, the biggest thing was that, you know, it, it, as we discussed, my kind of pre-gaming life as a artist as an illustrator. Um, I I'm a creative person, uh, you know. I that's that's what I love to do. So while. Yeah working in the gaming industry as an editor, you know, I got to lay out magazines, trust me, getting a a printed copy of the magazine you just worked so hard on uh, in your past deadline, you know, getting the printed copy back from the, from the printer is a wonderful, satisfying feeling. Yeah. So when you, when you, but when you have those kinds of urges, you know, I, I found myself getting frustrated that I was reporting and, and doing these beautiful features on other people's art. I wanted to get back, into doing my own art, you know? And, right. not, and by that, I don't mean drawing necessarily. As long as I'm doing something creative, I'm happy. And that's what kept me in the gaming industry um, journalism side for so long mm-hmm. was being able to uh, design these magazines to plan out the features, to, to, to plot out the coverage, you know? And um, that's why we, we did these cover story style features on one because we wanted to, to kind of bring the magazine quality, into uh, the web. Um, but even then we were still talking about other people's art. And I was like, you know, I really need to get back to, to expressing my own ideas to, to making those things happen. So by the time Ziff Davis ended up kind of like bailing out of the, uh, print industry and, and sold everything over to, um, Hearst and UGO, um, I had already, um, begun discussing, um, moving into uh the gaming uh development side with uh Miz and also um itagaki uh i've uh, i have had a long um uh respectful relationship with tomonobu itagaki cool. and um i was actually offered uh, uh some wonderful job positions with tecmo mm. uh, a couple times but um I actually turned them down because he advised me not to go there because uh, he knew that he was going to be leaving. Right. So um, so I didn't take those jobs, and I'm glad that I didn't because you know mm. they've merged merged with Koei and all that stuff. So it wouldn't have been a, a long-lasting situation anyway. Um, mm. But so I spent about six months trying to decide whether I wanted to go to Japan and work with Itagaki or go to Japan and work with Mizuguchi. And what I came, the conclusion I came to was that I knew how Idagaki san works, and he's like, you know, it's old school, hardcore Japanese yeah. game development. They have one big project, and they will go underground for like years, right? So mm-hmm. you've seen what's happened with Devil's Third; they've um, been working on that for a long time, yeah. and I, I've heard all the horror stories about, you know, working on Ninja Gaiden. They guys don't go home for weeks at a time, so when we were moving to J- my wife and I were moving to Japan, um, uh, she was also about six months pregnant with our daughter and the last thing I wanted to do after having a newborn um, was not see her so of course. that was a big factor, and also you know' we're, you know the entire time I've known. Suguchi-san, he's always been cheerful and happy and positive. Mm. Not to say that hidagaki um, san isn't cheerful and happy and positive. I mean, his public persona doesn't convey that, but he's actually a really fun guy. But with Miz, it was kind of a different thing. It's almost like working with Peter Pan, and I mean that in the best <laughs> way possible. You know, yeah. he he's always so positive and cheerful, and I was like, I really want to work with that. And mm. I also knew that Pure Entertainment had this reputation for doing. Um, much more experimental things, smaller projects, like multiple projects. You know, they they had done a lot of DLC games, a lot of PSP games, you know, you know their track records. So I yeah. just thought it was a better fit for me, especially since music is such a big part of my life. And mm. uh, electronic music in particular. Um, so, you know, everybody I talked to, once I started talking to the guys at Ziff Davis about what my options were, everybody everybody was like, you've got to go to Q Entertainment. And so I did.
0: And it's working out okay, yeah?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's working out pretty nice. You know, they give me so much freedom there, and uh, the projects we get to work on are really cool. So, you know, I can't complain.
0: Fantastic. Um, yeah, it's actually, something you were saying there leads me on to a, a question that I had um, about Mizuguchi-san. Yeah. Um, in, It is about the the sort of the difference in vibe between uh, Rez and Child of Eden 10 years later. In almost every sense, Child of Eden has a softer, more blissful, positive vibe than Rez. And I was wondering, is this simply down to the scenario of the respective titles or is it a manifestation of Mizuguchi's maturity? Uh, You know, as we see with so many filmmakers and musicians, the angry young man gives way to the, the more philosophical, mature person
1: that's that's a hard one to say um that's a hard thing to to say definitively i think at the time you know um techno music had kind of an edge and mm. uh you know i'm i'm speaking about when res came out and you know since everything was moving to kind of like a hyper realistic uh uh direction you know every 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 developer wanted to use the new three d you know, powers of the PlayStation Two to, to do cool kind of textured things. So, so Res was really counterculture to that. Mm. You know, it, they they came up with the wireframe look and and everything was you know th- they had a different director on that game as well. So, you know, they went for something edgy. They went for you know the the music reflects that. You know, Adam Freeland's yeah. Fear and mm. Rock is sponge by Jujuka. Those were all hard tribal kind of heavy um i wouldn't say they were dark but they were definitely kind of more intense right that was kind of like aggressive club music so in later years maybe mrs Mellowed, but he's always been mellow um
3: Mm.
1: (laughs) he you know he he's he's been working with his band ganky rockets and it's got this whole theme of love happiness um hope and um one of the one of the key things that even though um, Child of Eden was very, very much a spiritual sequel to Rez, he wanted to go out of his way almost to avoid being just like Rez. So whereas Rez was wireframes and dark landscapes, um, Child of Eden was organic and full of color and full of, um, you know, l- things that you associate with nature, living life, you know, like all the whales and the manta rays that you see in the in the game, all the flowers. you know this was supposed to be a very, very big contrast while retaining elements that are similar to Res. Sure. So, you know, is he, he, what he, the way he works is he tends to do things as a reaction to what he just previously did. So, you know, that's why, um, space channel five and res were so different. That's why, um, you know, you know, you, you notice he hasn't done another racing game since, um,
0: Sega, Sega Rally. Rally. Yeah, I was and, just going to mention Sega Rally. I mean, that's a and, happy game, you know. It's uh, people associate uh, you Suzuki really with um, blue blue skies, uh, d- right. you know, Sega blue skies. But actually, uh, Sega Rally uh, has blue blue skies in it. Um, yeah. it's, it's just as sort of um, a t- uh, sorry, typically Sega as uh, as as a lot of uh, Suzuki stuff.
1: Yeah. And it's also got the, the, the musician I'm blanking on his name now, but you know, he has mm. that, like the, he says sings like game over. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah. the happiest game over
0: Absolutely. you've ever heard in your life. I'm so totally planning on having that um, somehow on my, well, probably not a gravestone, but I, I do like the idea that as somebody approaches whatever memorial plaque I get, it actually <laughs> sings that at them. That would be my favorite thing. Yeah, you just mentioned there, James, uh, you, you said uh, spiritual successor, but um, Child of Eden is also a prequel. Is, is it definitively a prequel? Are we allowed to call it a prequel? Story-wise, I mean. To, to Rez. Rez? Yeah.
1: At the end of Rez, and these two are, are literally not connected in terms of their mythology, um, the themes are the same. And in fact, at the end of Res, you see, you know, or in the um, kind of story descriptions in Res, um, mm. Eden, Eden is mentioned in Res.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So, so um, the last time I checked, Child of Eden is actually supposed to be the um, is actually supposed to be the sequel because it's the future okay. future internet. Eden is the is the metaphor or uh, uh, f- for the future internet, this is where all the information is stored. Um, it doesn't feel necessarily like the sequel because it looks um, less alien. Yeah. So like I, it, Res has a little bit more of a futuristic look, but I, I do believe that um, Child of Eden is supposed to be the sequel,
0: the I, I spiritual I've, sequel. I've, I've misunderstood. I've got confused. And I think that's exactly what, what it is. It's uh, you kind of, I don't know. It's something about the, the relative scenarios that you assume that the 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 darker one, the dystopic one, f- happens yeah. further down the line because obviously you see things starting to go wrong in the uh, the intro video to to Child of Eden, but yeah. uh, maybe and that's and
1: it. and Res also has more of um, uh, a monolithic two thousand one space odyssey thing going on yeah. with it. So I can totally understand why uh, you might think the more organic look of Eden is the is is a prequel, but I do believe it's it's meant as kind of like the successor.
0: Okay, well, that is gospel. That is as good as the horse's mouth, uh, (laughs) as as far as I'm concerned. The the, the horse's mouth right-hand man is is good enough (laughs) for (laughs) me. Um, So, uh, Child of Eden came out on the Xbox 360 in June, and I rushed out on day one and bought it at full price, just as I did with Res back in 2001, and bought it on the PS2, although I had the option of the Dreamcast version, which is now worth a lot more money, so maybe I should have gone for that (laughs) one, but uh, it ran at half the frame rate, so that was that decision made. Um, And now, uh, so your your team, the team, the in-house team, has... um, switched over it once the 360 version was finished to, uh, port it. Is that fair or convert it or, uh, program it for the PS3?
1: Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was always, uh, the whole thing was worked on by the, by the same exact team. So, um, uh, it says, uh, it says the PS3 version, I think is, is, as pure. If you want to say as, as the 360 version, it's just that since we're a small team, it, it came out later um you know we weren't big enough to actually manage uh, the the simultaneous development um so it's the same exact game it just that it came out um came out a little bit later it's like a fraternal twin but um if you are the if you do, if you don't have a connect for example and you and you were waiting for the ps3 version i think the uh ps3 version is uh equally interesting um, possibly more so uh, because of its uh, because of its um, subtle differences, like um, the move controller. Some people might fi- have um, a better time ho- actually holding a controller they can feel. Um, and uh, the thing that I really like about the PS3 version is the fact that it it's in 3D. It's just it's just a, a real trip playing that game in 3D.
0: Mm. Unfortunately, I'm one of those who can't see 3D, which is a shame. Oh. Um, Color yeah, Uh No, it's just, I don't know, it's just my brain refuses to accept uh, the world being in three dimensions. I think I may be always seeing in 2D, even when I'm actually looking at real things. I'm not really sure anymore. That sounds um, pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, in, ter- in, the te- in technical terms, obviously, we're, we're increasingly seeing... Um, versions of games like thinking of Dark Souls where there are minor minor differences between the two versions Xbox 360 and PS3 but increasingly they are indistinguishable from one another now obviously you've got a fairly fundamental difference in the connect move scenario but other than that on the technical side uh, are, are there any discernible differences we're not talking like the Dreamcast PS2 versions of Res, where there was a 30 frames a second difference or anything like that
1: yeah, no, there's there's no there's no tangible or, or or meaningful differences between the two. I mean, like the even though the Xbox three sixty hardware and the PS3 architecture are very different, like these games are, are barely indistingu- indistinguishable. I used to be really into those kinds of um
3: mm.
1: little uh little tech differences, you know, like oh the the lighting is 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 stronger on this or the you know like when back in the sega saturn versus the playstation oh, days yeah. you would see the huge differences right oh saturn can't do transparencies or you know ps ps1 couldn't do um real 2d sprites and parallax that kind of thing you, you don't have that with with games these days not not in a meaningful sense so anybody looking f- uh to buy the ps3 version will, will be happy to know that it's a uh, It's not a port. It's exactly the same game. The only difference is that it came out a little bit later.
0: Now, yeah, I really wanted to talk on a technical, uh, it's not technical, actually, it's more a game, technical gameplay side of things. Um, I'm Mm -hmm. a control pad user. I've played, uh, I played res for 10 years with a, with a pad, first the PS2 and then the 360 pad. Um, I played child of Eden with a pad. I don't have a connect. I don't have room or money for one. Um, And Mm -hmm. I don't have move either. Now, on 360, the Kinect and controller leaderboards were kept separate, very sensibly, for obvious reasons. Uh, it's Basically, it's impossible to get uh, scores as high with Kinect as it is with the controller. But what I was wondering, I don't have the PS3 version yet. Um, I would have thought that what I know about Move, and having played on the Wii, it might even be the other way around, where, where on, with Move you could get higher scores than you could get with a standard controller.
1: I think that, and you know, I think it really comes down to the skill of the player. So this should not be taken um, as as gospel. But personally, I think that it would be more physically challenging to achieve the same sort of accuracy with a move that mm-hmm. you could with the controller, just because the range of your motion on screen, in terms of moving the cursor around and all that stuff. You know, it happens within, you know, centimeters and inches of mm. of your thumb movements, whereas to achieve the same thing with the move or any motion controller, you know, this is not moves specific to the move, but any motion controller, yeah. you're going to have to wave your arm, feet, multiple feet, meters, uh, you yeah. know, whatever, uh, mm. in order to achieve the same effect. And, um, you know, it's hard to beat the accuracy of a controller. So... Um, yes, you do have uh, a more tangible, quantifiable um, experience with the the move because it is a very accurate um, uh, motion device, and you have buttons to um, trigger when you're going to fire and when you're going to release and, and all that stuff. So there there are differences for sure, but um, I think that uh, I think if you're planning on playing with the controller, you might have the
2: edge. So, I think that translates clearly that since I didn't get past the first, the, the second boss on, on Child of Eden, that I have no <laughs> chance whatsoever on doing it with a move control. <laughs>
0: yeah. No? Um, Jay struggles with uh, Child of Eden and Rez. Um, and I think, particularly, the thing about Child of Eden is because it rewards you for um, releasing the button on the beat, um, uh, it's kind of an extension of uh, every extend in that regard um jay has a bit of a ironically he's married to a drummer a a very you know very good (laughs) successful drummer he can't keep time um we recently found this there's a there's a rhythm action section in god of war 3 i I had to help him get past it (laughs)
2: it's it's not it's every every single game um was it uh, San Andreas? Was exactly the same. The moment I come, yeah, the dancing mini game on the beach with the van, where I had to steal the van, that was where I had to stop playing because I couldn't get past that moment in the game. <laughs> so anything that relies on on any kind of timing, forget it. I often have to pull Kai out and, and have her play those bits to get me past them in the first <laughs> place.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're rhythmically challenged.
0: But you yeah. uh, you got on with Lumines okay because you don't actually have to keep the beat in that game, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know so, what's funny
1: though, in Child of Eden, the 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 timing for for the Octolocks and and all that hmm. stuff, and to get it perfect, it's actually designed to be fairly forgiving. So yeah. this is this is not an indictment of your skills, Jay, but it it shouldn't be as rough on you as as it sounds like it is, because the whole point of Q Entertainment's kind of synesthesia engine is that everything's quantized so that you know at least you sound good. Maybe your your timing isn't yeah. getting the uh, the perfect score, but you're, you should at least sound good while you're playing.
2: Mm. You say the Synesthesia engine is that then um, Q Entertainment's like proprietary engine for those games as well.
1: Yeah, it's 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 not an engine in the sense of um, like you know uh, the Unreal Engine. It's not a full yeah. graphics thing. It, it, it's primarily about the um, it's designed to tie in your inputs. And have it sync up with the sound mm-hmm. so that you're always on beat, you're always in rhythm, mm-hmm. and um you know it it's designed to give you it's hard to describe unless you actually see the engine in action, mm-hmm. but it's designed so that um when you input something into the controller, you get an audio and visual feedback that complements the way the way you play same as same. Same as uh, when UGA first did Res. You know, you you release the the lock-on shots, or you fire the rapid shot, and everything um, synchronizes to the to the music.
0: Hmm. We've seen it in uh, Space Invaders Extreme. They they, that's got a very similar system uh, where no matter when you're actually firing the bullets and things are exploding, uh, yeah, like you say, it quantizes the sound, so it makes you it, it creates a rhythmic background to whatever you're doing whereas the early rhythm action games like Parappa the Rapper could be incredibly frustrating um and even Space Channel 5 to some degree in that it didn't always seem to feel like it was reading your inputs exactly perfectly um yeah. back, in the, back in those early days of, of rhythm action
1: so Parappa and Space Channel 5 um you actually heard your inputs the way you played them
0: that's right so yeah.
1: if you were off rhythm it was all too apparent yeah. Res was Res was the first game that really um, uh, where they really implemented the the quantization so that you were always on beat, and um, you know that continued with the original Luminous and the Luminous series, uh, the Spar. Every time you tap the button to rotate the block, the sound effects are always in rhythm with the, the music. Mm. Um,
0: using the the choice to to make a connect game for Q to to. Consider was um, Child of Eden built with Connect in mind from the ground up, and and if so, was was using Connect and Avenue to appeal to a wider audience, as in to make it more accessible than say a traditional controller based Res game, or was it more about a better, a greater immersion into the the uh, the concept of synesthesia?
1: well q entertainment and especially ms uh the whole mantra is, is you know we always want to take advantage of the latest technology and and uh is see what sort of kind of sensory experiences we can create using this new technology that said um child of eden was originally designed as a um as a standard controller game um Fortunately, we weren't too far into development when we were first introduced to the concept of the Connect, Um, because that um, I remember even having um, discussions with Microsoft where they said, oh, we have something on the horizon we can't tell you about yet, but uh, I think it might fit your c- current project.
3: Sure.
1: So, um, you know, it made uh, great sense, you know, it's because um, Child of Eden is a game that really matches what you can do with the connect and motion control in general. But, um, you know, there are some things that I think don't really make sense for motion control. For example, driving games, you know, mm-hmm. you never get, you never get into a car and don't have a steering wheel there. Yeah. So you really need that steering wheel or a controller when you're playing a game. However, with child of Eden, it's kind mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, your Iron Man or Spider-Man and, you know you're shooting a web or you're shooting a repulsor beam so what's happening on screen in child of eden is really an extension of yourself so it makes sense it's in first person view yeah. um you know you're shooting everything on screen with the tracer shot or the lock-on shot so it really makes um philosophical conceptual sense and that's why it was a it was a really seamless fit a lot of people think that it was designed for connect first because it's so seamless, because it makes so much sense. But it actually started out as a pure controller game,
0: right? Question from uh, Tom.
2: Hey guys, fun here.
3: Got a question for James regarding Child of Eden.
2: I um, no the game was made with kind of hands-free evolved more than anything with Connect, but um, was there any ever was there ever a
3: thought to bring out um, like the trans vibrator for it? Um, and if not, will my PS2 one work with the PS3 version? There you go. Ask me a question. Cheers, guys. Take it easy. This
1: is a guy who wants some vibration, huh?
0: Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. B- <laughs> well, big, well, big, big, big res fan and still wants to get some use out of his vibrator. <laughs>
1: well, the, the, um, the, the original trans vibrator definitely does not work in any of the, mm. um, Situations because it was designed to recognize the PS2 code, and I guess it can't be um, reverse engineered or, or for whatever reason. I I, I don't mm-hmm. think it was. I think the the real practical reason was that how many people were really going to have a trans vibrator, and <laughs> is it worth programming it into the game for less than one percent of the of the user base to actually you know take advantage of this? So so no, I don't. I don't think it was a practical.
2: Yeah, but that that one percent seemed very happy if you see the YouTube videos. Yeah, oh, that's Mizuguchi's <laughs> biggest fans. You're talking about that one percent.
1: <laughs> well, you know that the Xbox 360 version actually supports, I think, something like 32 um, I Xbox heard this. 360 yeah, controllers. Yeah,
2: there is yeah. A, there's a sorry, there, there is a video of this, isn't there, on on YouTube? Of um think it mizuguchi Mizoguchi-san wearing the belt of 360 controllers or. It looks yeah, like a vest of-
1: uh, is it a, a youtube video I, I didn't I, know I'm that sure actually-
2: I've seen a picture I've seen some video of it i I swear it was youtube um if there is there'll that be a link possible. appearing at this point in the podcast so it'll be <laughs> hmm. it's
1: possible um you know, we definitely did a prototype um it was basically like a girdle it was i think mm-hmm. it was made out of a um like a uh, athletic kind of like back support. Belt, and uh, the office manager in our office fashioned a bunch of pockets in it, and and we basically stuck like four Xbox 360 controllers in there. And of course, if you want to connect up to thirty-two, you're going to have to um, you're going to have to use some USB hubs. But we tested it with four, and um, they all they all vibrate. And I'm pretty sure you can use the wireless ones too to to get that kind of vibrating action same vibrating action going on it's just that we didn't um, make a uh, a unique peripheral
2: what was that then in in for initially was that just a pure experimentation or was there a, a thought going behind that
1: there there was a, a little bit of a thought going behind it um uh, you okay. know with with the trans vibrator for ps2 mm-hmm. um you know you one, you were holding a, a dual shock in your hand, and two, the the trans vibrator was meant to kind of augment that sensation by giving you two separate bass rhythms, uh, so you could really kind of mm. get into the music and really feel something while you were playing. When you're playing with Connect, you don't feel anything unless you've really got your sound cranked up and the subwoofer on max. Mm. Um, but there's nothing um, giving you tangible feedback, so. One way we thought we could get around this was um by putting um force feedback in the other controllers so you could apply them to yourself and, and kind of feel the music a little bit more. It was kind of just to put you into the into the rhythm of the game as much as we could. Hmm.
0: Um this might be a politically awkward question I don't know I shall ask it anyway you can refuse to answer it. Um now over here both uh both versions of Child of Eden are available for a very reasonable uh 17 pounds 99 you can buy them quite comfortably it's under 30 dollars I think I uh, don't know how many yen it is I'm afraid. Um and uh, there's a sense that that it's doing well at on on the PS3 at that price point when it first came out on on the 360 I think people were surprised to see Ubisoft release it at 40 pounds. Um, mm-hmm. did, what were the commercial expectations for the title and, and on the 360 and, and have, have they been met?
1: Um, I think Ubisoft is, is, is quite satisfied actually, because, um, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but the, um, uh, the Xbox 360 version is being bundled with the Kinect now.
0: That makes perfect um, sense
1: and for um, everyone. Yeah. And so, from a, from a pure business standpoint, it's. it's Ubisoft is probably the better um, uh, sure. corporation or, or entity to ask this question. But I, I, from what I've heard, they're, they're actually quite satisfied, particularly because of, of how the Connect bundling has worked out. Um, what were the expectations? The expectations were hopeful, but we, we all knew how Res sold back in the day so we, you know we were curious like what has you know we always knew this would be more of a marquee title rather than a, a call of duty level blockbuster but you know it's hard it's hard to tell it's very hard to define what kind of game this is um and the connect mark was also new as well when the game came out so you know it was like who who is buying the connect what sort of players are buying the connect what sort of games are they looking for so there are a lot of a lot of variables that we, we couldn't answer. So, you know, we just had to uh, put it out there and hope for the best. Of course, uh, you know, the UK had to go and uh, let Zumba Fitness be the number one uh, <laughs> game I didn't buy for, it. what was it, like two months running? You know, something I'm ridiculous?
0: So. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so people clearly love their fitness, but, you know, you get a workout with Child of Eden too. We just got to get the word out there.
0: I was going to say that that could be simply a marketing exercise, you know. Um, Child of Eden, call it.
2: Fitness, uh, just stick fitness Z- on the Zumba
1: end. Yeah. edition.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well either, yeah. That, either that or get Helen Mirren to, uh, to advertise it on TV or whatever. And, does, that, and does that work? <laughs> that
0: could work with yeah. Shard of Eden. You, is she is, that- is is advertising? Is,
2: he, um, uh, is, is, is that uh, the game I'm thinking of? Because she definitely appeared in a, a fitness game TV advertisement recently. I don't know. You. I don't watch them as intently as you, Jay. <laughs> i just can i just
1: cannot imagine helen Mirren in a video game fitness commercial usually they go for people who are a bit younger
0: well
2: yeah. again i'll send you the youtube link but, uh, <laughs> it's surprising um yeah
0: we had a whole campaign over here particularly for the ds with uh, mm-hmm. middle-aged and, and older celebrities to to appeal to the to that demographic and it and oh, apparently that is it, so horrible it really worked as well you know <laughs> ds is you see there's a lot of um ds's in the hands of of greying people over here, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not just a kid's game anymore. Um, yeah, and it was um, what was the other one? It was uh, Patrick Stewart did one, didn't it? Yeah, Julie Walters and Patrick ah. Stewart. What bizarre! Oh my god! Bizarre mashup that was. Yeah, and um, people think you know people sort of over here. There's that sort of culture of <laughs> Japanese TV. It's so wacky, but actually, I think ours is probably more <laughs> wacky. We're just more used to it. Yeah. Oh my god. <clears throat> um, a few uh, last questions, more about the future. So I, I realise that there's certain things you can and can't say, and that's absolutely fine. But um, as, a, as a fan of uh, Mizuguchi's work for and, and Q Entertainment's output forever, um, we, we brushed past it earlier. Um, would Miz ever consider returning to the driving genre, even if, like, obviously I realise that Q Entertainment aren't going to make a game to compete with Forza or... Gran Turismo in terms of numbers of tracks and cars and things like that. But what about a game that utilised a steering wheel, particularly a force feedback steering wheel? um, And, you know, it was like a a, a synesthetic twist on the driving genre.
1: You would be surprised at some of the things that we have discussed intently uh, within Q. And um, I'll just say that the racing genre is really difficult to break into now for, um, you know, clear clearly obvious reasons you've seen like black rocks um studios shut down uh you know bizarre creations so you know it's because publishers don't want to take a risk right now because there's there are big e-franchises there's like gran turismo there's forza there's need for speed so finding your own niche in that space is really difficult i mean split second was an awesome game beautiful fast fun and yet they never got to make a sequel, you know, and, um, Blur the games of well. they died too. Blur was decent and, you know, but it's hard for a game to make, uh, waves like it used to in the racing genre. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of impressive that Ridge Racer still keeps on ticking, but you know, it's, I think the, the audience is, is dwindling, but, but because the racing genre is sort of, I wouldn't say it's dying. It's just shrinking Yeah. because it's shrinking, you know, opportunities may present themselves in the future, right? There's more, there's more space now. There's, there's not as much, um, there's not as much uh, competition. So it's, a, it's all a matter of timing, but regarding what you asked um, specifically about racing with a synesthetic twist, we have explored synesthesia, uh, you know, and, discuss concepts about applying it to all genres you know could you imagine synesthesia in a first person shooter or in a flight sim or in a fighting game or in a racing game we've 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 discussed a lot of these things and you know if the time is right uh he is definitely uh miz is definitely not against uh doing a racing game um he's not proactively looking to make one happen but we have discussed what the what ifs for sure,
2: I'm glad to hear it. Um, I'm just kind of curious. Where does the fascination with um, synesthesia come from? Then is
1: well, you know, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with um, you know the party days of uh, you know.
2: Yeah, it often sort of occurred to me, you know, whether that was the case, and you just sort of hesitant to broach the subject, but it's just uh,
1: <laughs> You know, uh, you know, we're 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 we were all young once, so you know, we we go out, and we have our fun, you know, you get you get out in the club, you see the the strobe lights, the music, it all kind of mm-hmm. like starts making sense. But you know, it's I, I think one of the reasons why maybe um you know, games like Res were considered ahead of their time. So if, take for example North America. Um you've got Club Savvy, um people in you know new york chicago san francisco Mm -hmm. los angeles but once you get in kind of more landlocked areas there um you know there aren't as many clubs i'm not saying that it's uh uh people in the midwest for example are ignorant of electronic music that's not the case it's just that you know where they can go and see these um sorts of djs or where they can go hear this kind of music and and really get it you know, they're, they're few and far between it's, um, it's one thing to listen to, you know, I don't know, faithless on a, on your headphones or in your car and your stereo. And it's another thing completely to see them live or to hear it in a, in a club with a proper sound system like ministry of sound or, or, you know, um, cream or something like that in, in England, you know, you, you don't have those kinds of, um, places in, the majority of, of North America. So that's why something like res, you know, falls on deaf ears because they don't, they, they don't get it. It's a religious experience when you go to a, a club like that. Cause you know that everybody in that club is there to hear that DJ and they're all on the same page. So when that DJ hmm. flicks the fader or twists the bass or the treble, you know, all the hands go up in the air, the strobe lights come on. It's like religion because you're there with a, a club full of true believers. So, you know, when you try and extrapolate that and pitch it to the masses who've never been in a situation like that, who listen to classic rock, country music, hip hop, or whatever, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not making the connection. So, you know, Miz uh, live lives in Tokyo, so he's hmm. surrounded by club culture, so he's always understood it, and he's always tried to steal that you know, into a popular art form for the masses. So um you know, it's always gonna be the challenge to try and get that sort of thing across. In Europe it works much better because in in Europe electronic music is I think is is much more um I don't know, prominent.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Understood. Yeah.
1: You know? Yeah. I mean you look at a movie like Train Spotting, the big key moment at the end of the film is is um, you know, bookended by um, underworld's born slippy. Hmm. That's brilliant. And everybody in everybody, uh, in the UK totally gets it. They totally understood it. Hmm. Um, and, and not to say that it wasn't appreciated in the States, but, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what, if people got the same feeling from it, I don't know. It's hard to say.
0: Hmm. Um, any chance of, uh, Q making a return to the downloadable arena? Um, um, perhaps with some of the, the IPs we've already seen, the every extends Gunpei, meteoros, meteos, things like that, or are they all on hiatus?
1: Um, downloadable space. I would say definitely. Yes, because there's, um, the downloadable the downloadable space, the games are actually becoming higher and higher in quality. Mm. And as you can see with PlayStation Vita, all the games will be released in physical form and downloadable form. So it's moving in that direction. Mm. Um, if you mean downloadable as in smaller scale, um, you know, I think it was always embraced, uh, projects of all sizes. So I would, I would guess yes to everything. Um, Medios possibly that's, um, we don't have, we're not having any active discussions about, um, where to take Medios. Uh, but I would never say never to to Medios as far as, um, ever extend and, and Gunpei. Um, those are actually owned, those IPs are owned by other companies. You know, uh, every Extend actually started as a, uh, a free web game, uh, ah, okay. a flash, a flash yeah. game, mm. um, which was created by somebody else. And uh, we licensed it and, and created um, the PSP version, every Extend extra. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, and of course, the XBLA version. Um, and Gunpei is actually owned by um, the company that Gunpei Yokoi, the yeah sure the creator of game boy um that's actually owned by um the company he created oh, okay. so that that was a licensed thing as well so All right. my guess would be that um those two games in particular have uh, had their run at their time uh but you, you never know yeah sure. it's what the it's what the fans want if there's a demand you know i think there will always be a chance
0: I was gonna ask actually, have either you or Mizuguchi-san played uh, Zoe Mode's Chime, which is obviously a tribute to Luminez, and it originally came out as a charity release?
1: Yeah, I've actually played quite a bit of Chime and I and uh I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um it's uh I, I don't know why. Um I'm not horrible at it. I enjoy it. I can uh, I can enjoy it for um uh what it is, and I really like their use of Philip Glass.
0: Yeah, it's great. I don't know
1: if I don't I don't actually know if Miz has, has played it the the topic hasn't really come up, but um I, I certainly have and I, I like it. But I just wish I was a little bit better at it.
0: Do you think he'd be just simply flattered or 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 is it would he think it was a, a rip?
1: <laughs> I'm not really sure, but but Miz doesn't really really think in those ways. It's it's hard to get him uh about anything he doesn't feel territorial <laughs> about things like that. he doesn't look at, at things and say like, "Oh, that's my idea." Sure. or you know he's, he's very uh, he does his thing and he, and he keeps on going, moves on and never really looks in the rear view mirror you know so uh, I'm sure if he did play it though, he would really enjoy it. Yeah. it seems like the kind of thing he'd like.
0: I know that uh, Steve Curran who designed it, he's a massive Luminez fan so it was all done in honor of. Luminous. There was. I don't think there was any attempt to, you know, do anything nefarious with that. Oh
1: no. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we we don't have a monopoly on on geometric shapes <laughs>
0: and music.
1: So you know. Otherwise, you'd own the Tetris it's...
0: company. A lot yeah. Of
1: it, 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 if if anything, uh, I actually look at Chime as it's. If it, to me, it feels more like Tetris mm. because of of the shapes and how you're trying to fit those together, versus um, you know uh, Luminous, which is cubes more falling falling blocks yeah um the musical element of course and the kind of visual approach feels like you know there's some dna shared with uh luminous but um i don't think any of us at, at q ever looked at it and thought like oh that's a ripoff no i think yeah. just <laughs> you know, we just thought it's a it's a, a lovely puzzle game that incorporates music and it's great to see more i think we all think it's great to see more games like that
0: that's great um final question before we let you go um you uh, you were quoted on an interview with bitmob as saying q entertainment has given me near carte blanche to create new concepts um that's a pretty amazing situation to be and you've already alluded at the the freedom you have to create within q um just is, isn't that almost a bit intimidating and imposing in that you've got you know, when, when you're coming up with a, with a left field concept these days now, it may be that Q entertainment are receptive to it, but you still have to get it out there. You still have to persuade people to, uh, look at it and buy it and promote it. Um, how do you feel about that?
1: I can say with, um, some certainty that to me, it's not intimidating at all. It's like, it's, it's freeing if anything, because, um, I can sit down in front of my computer. I can, um, Take all these ideas that I have and, uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, just kind of execute, you know, um, most of it is like on paper, um, design and, and sometimes I'll sit down with, uh, san and I'll, he'll say, um let's come up with some games that satisfy these sort of requirements. Like, oh, whether it's motion control, whether it's downloadable, you know, the criteria changes daily and it's my job to come up with a creative solution. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been actually quite successful coming up with game designs that we've pitched to publishers and they've loved them and said, let's do this, Mm -hmm. you know, So, um, you know, if anything, that's actually encouraging because, you know, I get a feel for what publishers are looking for, but we are still able to come up with really, really, really original ideas that just happen to fit, you know. Um, So if a publisher says, oh, we'd like, you know, we're looking for a game that is suitable for this age group and uses this control method or whatever, you know, do you have anything do you think that would work in this in this space? and we've been able to come up with some really unique ideas that are much more accessible than you might think you mm-hmm. know we're not always about trying to do this um super edgy super trippy stuff there's some there's some ideas that i think we're going to be working on that would surprise people you know we want to we want to diversify a little bit so we're not going to abandon the things that we do well but we're going to apply those principles to new concepts and it's it's very exciting because people come to us expecting something different and that's what we uh you know we're trying to take our experience and you know use it in a smart way to um come up with something cool and surprising but also accessible to a lot of people so you know it's fun it i can imagine why it would be intimidating but know this is such a fast-moving business you, you don't have time to really think about mm-hmm. things like that you just gotta move forward and 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 if i'm excited about it i think other people would be excited about it if i'm too worried about like oh you know um business models or or focus groups or mm. or casual consumers or, or that kind of that kind of thing then you know it, i'm never going to get anywhere
2: it's it's interesting you say that actually because i, I It's often sort of uh, maybe a misrepresented, according to what you've just said, um, idea that the big business kind of stifles creativity in many ways, you know, because they don't want to take risks anymore or they don't want to lose, basically lose money. But that sounds like the complete opposite to what you've just said. So it's just, it's quite... um, it, it, it's surprising, but it's also quite sort of... Encouraging. Uh, yeah, definitely. You, you, you know, the idea that they are willing to take risks on, on new concepts is, is, yeah, it's definitely encouraging to hear.
1: Well, like I mentioned before, they do come to queue expecting something a little bit off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah, and, You I know, they're, yeah. They're, they're not coming to us looking for something that, you know, I don't know. Call it you. I don't want to put anybody... Yeah, yeah, well, obviously we're never going to pull off something as massive as Call of Duty, but you know, we we have our own kind of space in the industry. And you know, um they you know, our publishers have actually always been really supportive of, of us. Ubisoft has been fantastic. You know, they mm-hmm. they they know what we do and they know that they've got to um kind of uh nurture it in order to kind of get the best out of us. And they're, they're brilliant to work with um, all of, all of our other publishers too, that, you know, they know what we do and they really welcome these like kind of uh, out there ideas. But, you know, there's always going to be a point where um, somebody gets involved and says, well, we don't think this particular thing works for these reasons. And that's fine. You know um, we don't, we don't know it all. You know, sometimes um, publishers have insights that we don't, they have, um, stats and um, demographic studies that um, can often actually uh, give us some really helpful, surprising information. So you know, we just absorb all this stuff and we and we do the best we can.
0: Fantastic, Excellent. James. Have you anything you'd like to say to the Canaan Rinse listeners before you go? Anything you'd like to promote, pimp, uh, or whatever, a blog or anything like that?
1: Not, not, not in particular. I just hope that um, your your listeners are looking forward to our next uh, big release, which is Luminous, you know. Um, Luminous, the original Luminous, is synonymous with the original PSP. A lot of people tell me that, you know, that's the game that they still have in their PSP. Yeah. and uh, It's it's kind of like, I think, Tetris to the Game Boy. Yes, exactly, you know? yes. L- Luminous to, to the PSP. So we're really, really, really hoping to um, make uh, the new Luminous to the Vita, what luminous one was to the psp and uh a lot of people have um asked us over the years to put the original luminous on psn yeah but that was really a difficult thing because of of myriad licensing issues um but what we're doing with um i i I truly believe what we're doing with uh this luminous it's a real reboot it's a real return to form um it really uh, grabs all of the things that made the first Luminous so fun and wonderful and really just takes them into a new generation. This is really a next generation, brand new, uh, absolutely exciting Luminous. And i um, personally proud of this one because of the, the stellar roster of electronic music artists that we've assembled for this game.
0: That we're not allowed to say who. <laughs> well well the we can definitely talk about a couple of them okay. um uh
1: the chemical brothers yep. are in there mm-hmm. um and uh we've got a, a wonderful track by cascade uh called 4am and um uh-huh. and this is the fr- this is the first time I'm, I'm mentioning this but we've also confirmed uh ken ishi ken ishi, yeah. uh, was in the Red soundtrack and he was yeah. also in uh luminous too mm-hmm. so um I've known Ken for a long time and he's a super, super wonderful guy. I believe he's studying in England for a while too. He's got a bit Mm. of a British accent. Yeah. Um, So uh, we finally um, uh, sealed the deal on getting one of his uh, best tracks in the game. And uh, looking forward to um, seeing people's reaction to the playlist.
0: That's a Kane and Rince exclusive & Rinse exclusive. That is. <laughs> um, I actually like, when I when I first played, Lum- in fact, all the versions of Luminez that I've played, uh, for me, I, in, it, it's kind of just as much fun if you don't know the music that's going to come on. But it's a way of discovering new music and feeling it in that way. Just as I have through the more, you know, uh, with the more uh, traditional rock forms of music through Guitar Hero and Rock Band, I've, I've discovered lots of acts that I wasn't familiar with before. Um, and well, I've- I found- Go on.
1: I'm sorry uh, if if I'm being completely honest I'll tell you what one of my inspirations was about this as I mentioned before I really love electronic music mm. I've always loved electronic music you know it was like synth pop when I was a teenager and it became you know techno electronic uh you know m- more eclectic things like cr- I, as I got older Kraftwerk work, orbital um you know you name it anything with a keyboard or a sampler I was there mm. so one of my favorite soundtracks of all time was the Wipeout twenty ninety seven.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Soundtrack. Yeah, amazing. Okay, that's
1: that's the soundtrack. That's the soundtrack. That's the game where where so many people discovered Daft Punk, Underworld, um, uh, you know, uh, the Prodigy, all the Future Sound of London. Yep. You know those bands for the first time, and it's it's still a landmark soundtrack. That that soundtrack, the Red soundtrack, those are like. Not only are they like the, the pinnacle of electronic music soundtracks, they're just some of the best game soundtracks ever.
3: Yeah, they're Because right.
1: not, it's, it's not game music. It's, it's, it's quote-unquote real music. Mm-hmm. It's music that just happened to be appropriated for a video game. What we're trying to do with this Luminous, um, uh, which was revealed at TGS as Luminous Electronic Symphony, mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is we're trying to create something that will stand the test of time as well as the Wipeout soundtrack or the Red soundtrack. Great. You really want to make an epochal collection of just amazing electronic music. And it's, there's, there's a lot of tracks in there that are going to surprise you.
0: Fantastic. Um, uh, one final comment, actually, away from electronic music. I, I noticed from your 1UP uh, bio that you're also a fan of Josh Rouse, who I'm a huge fan of.
3: Really?
1: I definitely am. I saw him live in, in, in San Francisco as well. He chewed gum the entire
0: concert. Really? Okay. I saw, <laughs> yeah. I, I saw him live about seven times the first half of the last decade, um, starting in about 2000 when, when nobody had heard of him. And I actually got to speak to him that evening briefly um, at a urinal, and uh, I told him how magnificent his voice was. Um, yeah. Uh, have you heard his new record? It's just out. No, I haven't actually. It's a, it's it's somewhat of a return to form, so I recommend it. It's a, it's sort of a collaboration with two Spanish musicians. Uh, it's called Josh Rouse and the Long Vacations. So um, you can you can find it on his website, and uh, so it's, it's a sort of happy summer sounding record. But it's perhaps not quite as um, sort of uh, the last couple have been a little too sort of light, um, a, li- a, a little lacking in substance for me. This one's got a little bit more going on, I think so. I recommend it. I quite,
1: I quite like his uh, album Nashville. I thought that was a bit...
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the, it's the couple after that that I think were, were not quite as good.
1: Did you not like Subtitulo?
0: Not so much. I think it's got... Really? one or two good songs on it, but i think um I think overall it's it's a little light and fluffy for my tastes he he got a bit too it, happy basically it was that <laughs>
1: it is light and fluffy that that was specifically because it was after i believe um, he got divorced yeah so he exactly. was chipper
0: yeah he went he was quite chipper he went to live in spain and uh, yeah um yeah which is <laughs> understandable. like it's not I, I want him to be happy he's a great guy and uh, and a wonderful talent but but <laughs> i tend to i tend to uh head towards more melancholic songs
1: <laughs> yeah it'll be interesting to follow up with you afterwards and and, and discuss music because if you like uh, some melancholic music i was actually listening to um the proclaimers the other day All and right. those guys are melancholic <laughs> like uh like whoa
0: yeah classic and uh, uh, scottish folk duo <laughs> yeah see i've never, I never so, thought uh, of those guys as melancholy I, well th- that's because th- over here they're more famous for their novelty hits
1: Right, because if you're listening to like I'm on my way, it's 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 way too upbeat. But if you listen to the majority of their um their at least their hits catalog, it's really really somber stuff.
3: Yeah, like
1: sunshine, sunshine on Leith. and yeah,
3: yeah.
2: yeah. it can't it can't can't be darker than say the Jesus and Mary train. If you're talking about miserable Scottish (laughs) television or (laughs) anything, that's feed
1: feed feedbackville like crazy. I saw the. Jesus and Mary Chain live, and I thought my ears were going to bleed.
0: Yeah, apparently they're one <laughs> Which... of the bands who have uh, suffered with, because uh, these days concerts tend to be a lot quieter than they used to be. Um, people, people go into gigs wearing earphones these days. You do, Jay, don't you? You wear, do you oh, wear yeah. earphones to gigs? Uh... Yeah, I can't do it. It's just like, I don't know. It just seems so wrong.
2: <laughs>
0: oh, I, well, I don't like tinnitus. <laughs> well, just... no, I, I've got tinnitus, and that's probably that's probably my my own fault. But uh, but uh, I, I grew up, as I say, sitting behind my granddad's jazz band, and uh, mm. like it was crazy fucking loud for a little kid's ears. But God, it was amazing. So mm.
1: uh, speaking of speaking of tinnitus and melancholy music, and you know, feel free to just like I'm assuming you're just going to chop this out, but. No. Um, uh, <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> We l- Patty Macaloon from prefab oh, sprout amazing. has got a wicked case of tinnitus. Like he cannot um, perform anymore because uh, it, it it's it almost drives him mad to listen to music at volume.
0: Yeah, it's tragic. In
1: fact, he um, he uh, was barely able to do the um, albums worth of acoustic covers for um, Two Wheels Good. Steve McQueen. Uh, I don't know if it's known over here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is it? That's right. It's Steve McQueen is the proper title. Yeah, they couldn't the release it. Two Wheels is Good is the America.
0: yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's incredible. Yeah, I was I was um, watching a lot of his stuff on YouTube uh, recently, catching up with some old prefab sprout. And um, yeah, they're another band who get a bit of a, a bad rep over here because their biggest hit was the King of Rock and Roll, Pink, and uh-huh. and that's a, a, a obviously a red herring. It's a yeah, it's a parody song about a novelty hit record, and and yeah. so they got lumped into that. Oh, so they just do those. Novelty hit records. No, he actually wrote some of the most intelligent, delicate, brilliantly crafted pop of the eighties and nineties. And
1: um, I'm going I'm to confess that Prefab Sprout may very well be uh, my favorite band. It 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 changes, you know.
0: There is annually, but there is nothing. They're, wrong with they're up there. They're up there. There is nothing wrong with that at all, James. That's that's a perfectly fine thing to uh, to. It's not, it's, it's not a guilty confession. That's just, that's just a thing to be proud of.
1: Felt good to get that off my chest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, well, thanks so much for your time, James. You've been an utterly awesome guest. Um, fascinating mm. tales to tell and from all sides of, of the, the spectrum of gaming and beyond. It's,
1: it's been my honor to be on this show. Oh,
0: thanks man. We'll let you, uh, probably get to bed now or at least see your wife or something. Um,
1: and, uh, and i got more work to do. Oh, cool. Okay.
0: Well, thanks no, again. No
1: sleep for the wicked. Hopefully
0: we'll speak to you again. Maybe we'll even have you on again someday when you've got something, you know, you want to talk about new,
2: whatever. Absolutely. Anytime. And once again, massive thanks to James for finding the time in his busy schedule to fit in this recording. We'd also like to say a very special thanks to my wife, Kai, basically for getting the ball rolling in this interview in the first place. Now, As we've said before, and we say every week, we want your voice on the show. And you can leave your comments and questions either via Skype by first sending us a contact request at Kane and or just Kane and Rinse, or you can send us an MP3. It's that easy. Forthcoming topics for shows are ECO Shadow of the Colossus, Gears of War 3, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, Enslaved Odyssey to the West and Heavenly Sword, and Shadows of the Damned. Right, now if you're into your social media, you can also find us on Twitter, at Cain and Rince, all one word. You can also email us, if you have any further comments or questions, at CainandRince at gmail.com. And if you're into your Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash and where you can even like us if you choose to. Canerance is also part of the Character Select Network, where you can find the likes of ReadyUp, Culture, Console Arcade and GamerDork. There is also a forum, where you can find that at characterselect.net slash forum, or just follow the link through on the front page of the blog. There's also iTunes, where you could subscribe, leave us a rating, or if you're feeling really adventurous, leave us a review. Right, that's about me done, so I'll f*** off and leave you to it, and uh, I'll let you go and listen to something else.
4: Ooh, Johnny, 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 there is a time for tears. Johnny, 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 you won't make it any better Johnny, 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 might will make it worse Ooh, Johnny, 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 I advise you to forget her Johnny, Johnny, ooh You're not the first, though it, hurts. Johnny, Johnny, ooh, ooh, Johnny, 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 what are you twenty one? Ooh, Johnny, 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 why don't you give it a rest? Ooh, Johnny, 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 the world is a million. Ooh, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Till your heart's missed a beat And you'll never make it up Or turn back the clock